you're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to www.redwoodbaptist.org. We hope and pray the message that you're about to listen to will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. Thank you, Mike. Please take your Bibles. Please turn to Mark chapter number 2. Mark chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Mark, not necessarily verse by verse, but uh, through many of the, the themes and portraits of of Christ, and I'm thankful that you're here. I'll tell you what, I love church, and one of the main reasons why I love church is because of you all, because of the people. Obviously, we come and we celebrate our living hope. We celebrate Jesus every single week, but church is a place where we can come and we can rub shoulders no matter what kind of week we've had. And I believe Redwood's a place of grace. It's a place where people genuinely love and care. And I'm so thankful, so thankful for you. And uh, I trust that uh, you've come today with a heart that's desiring to hear uh, from the Lord. We're going to continue in our series entitled Jesus from the book of Mark. And uh, we're going to begin reading verse number one of Mark chapter number two. If you'd follow along, many of the verses will be up on the screen later in the, uh, later in the message. But for now, if you'd look there into your Bible, please. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four, in other words, Four men brought him to them. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press or the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Back in the Bible day, homes were a little bit different. The roofs were a little bit different uh, than ours. It wasn't so much concrete and, you know, stucco and all that. It was literally just oftentimes just thatched roof with mud and things like that. And so they, so they broke that apart. In verse number five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They were just thinking amongst themselves. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But thee may know that the Son of Man have power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. This morning, by the grace of God, I want to preach a message entitled, What's Easier? What's easier. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time one more time. Lord, we come before you, and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this glimpse into the life of our Savior. And uh, we, uh, we see such 
just powerful truths here for us. And God, I pray that, Lord, you would help all of us to stay engaged as we work through this text, as we, as we glean uh, truth and the person of Christ for our every day of every moment of our life. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would not uh, so soon pass this off as a story that I've heard many a times, but instead that, Lord, we'd be locked into what you have for us. Lord, I submit this time before you. I pray, uh, Lord, that your power would be so evident in this hour. And God, will give you all the glory for what is said and done. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You and I, we, we use a word in our vocabulary over and over and over again. And maybe it is more of a shaping power in our lives than you and I might think. And the word that you and I use over and over again is the word need. Need. If you and I this morning were going to make a list of things that you think you need, what would be on your list? If you had a piece of paper and you were to grab the pen, maybe in the seat in front of you, and you'd be say, you'd put a title at the top of your page, things that I need. I wonder what would make that list. Maybe need is one of the sloppiest words that is used in human culture. Could it be that the very vast majority of the things that we would have conceived of need really aren't that at all? For those of you that are parents in here, you and I know exactly what I'm talking about. You will have a uh, seldom do your children ever come to you and say, you know, I would really I would really like a new pair of shoes. No, 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 that's, we, we, we've never heard that. Instead, we hear, I need a pair of new shoes. And then you look down and you see their feet completely covered in leather and there's rubber soles and you're beginning to think, ha, ah, this isn't so much a need at all. And how they're convinced that it's a need and they're going to begin to evaluate the degree of your parental love based on your willingness to meet that need. But if you and I, hear what I'm about to say, if you and I are convinced that something is a need, you then think you are entitled to it. You think it is your right now to demand it, and you are going to judge love of others by that need either being met or neglected. And so when it comes to need, I'll be honest with you, through the gospel... It's countercultural. Uh, it is counterintuitive. It confronts us of what our sense of need really is. So we went through uh, Mark 1. We spent about five or six weeks in it, and we jumped around. We skipped a few of the passages there. But we ultimately, in Mark chapter number 1, we were confronted and introduced to the character of Christ's ministry. And his zeal was to, uh, to preach the gospel and to uh, usher into uh, and preach the kingdom of God, to repent and believe. And now we're transitioning into chapter 2, and there are several controversial things that begin to take place in chapter 2 and uh, the beginning of chapter number 3. And so Jesus, he's, he's come quickly back to Capernaum. Uh, if you recall, at the end of chapter number 1, the crowds were gathering, and he was touching, 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 healing, healing, healing. 
and then the crowd was getting ready to, uh, you know, just submit to his authority and amazing who he is, and Jesus would always slip off and, uh, because he wanted to be more than a healer. We looked at that uh, last week. Well, now he's made his way back into uh, Capernaum, and he's gathered a group of people in a house, and he's preaching the word to them. Uh, there's no more room in this house. The, uh, the text kind of indicates that it's even stuffing, you know, just no room. And then the people are gathered on the outside just trying to get in. There's just busting at the seams. Now, we're not told what Jesus' sermon is here in Mark. As I told you, uh, Mark is a very quick hitter. Uh, rarely does he give us all the details that Matthew would give us and that uh, Luke would give us. He's just very quick. And so we don't know exactly what Jesus' sermon was, but it was most likely he was connecting who he is to the prophetic passages in the Old Testament. You could almost picture uh, Jesus saying, I am the one that the Old Testament spoke of. I am the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that you've come to know, that you have learned over the years. And as Jesus is preaching, there are these, these men that have brought a paralyzed man to, uh, to the scene. Oftentimes when the crowd would find where Jesus was, many would flock there. Many with all forms of diseases would come to Jesus because they were seeking healing. They were seeking some benefit uh, from Christ. You saw that in chapter 1, and often Jesus would slip away from that. And so these men have come with a man that was paralyzed, and yet there was, there was no room. They couldn't, they couldn't get to Christ. The the, the doors were stuffed. The windows were stuffed. And so what these men decided to do was they went up on top of the roof. And I mean, if you've grown up in church for any length of time, maybe even in Sunday school, you've heard this story. And so let me just let me let me teach it to you. Let me preach it to you. Don't don't just, you know, kind of push this aside as something that I've always heard. And these men, they do this amazing thing. They begin to dismantle the roof. Can you imagine me, the owner of the house? What in the world is going on as your roof begins to be uh, ripped apart? I'm not necessarily going to preach on that this morning. I have in the past from that particular angle. But notice what it says after these men place this paralyzed man in his bed. They lower him down right in front of Jesus. Look what it says in verse number 4. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, because of the crowd was so big, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. I really do love the example of the men here in this text. It's as if Mark gives us this little portrait of what a living example of what faith is and what faith does. And by the way, Jesus, he responds to this faith. But we see this little portrait. It's in fact, it's almost as if you can hear um, kind of Hebrews 11.6. These men are operating in these words, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You can kind of almost see that here in this text. These men are seeking out Jesus and they're seeking to the point where they're literally willing to rip up some other dude's house and his roof to get Jesus or to get this man to Jesus. And so I want to say, first of all, faith first is true, is rooted in truth. 
It is rooted in God's declaration of who He is. It is rooted in the truths of the Gospel. Hear me, faith is not some kind of religious leap in the dark. It's not just, well, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm just going to step off anyways. You've maybe heard um, pressure-type messages for that. You know, you need, to just, you need to just step out there by faith. No, it's always rooted in God's declaration of who He is. It says that, to, uh, the, that for he that cometh to God must believe that He is. So it's always rooted in, uh, in the truths of the gospel. But secondly, faith is never just theological. Faith is never just conceptual. Faith is never just a mental assent to something. Faith is always action. It is always a way of living. It is always a lifestyle. It is always an approach to life. So faith will not, not, uh, not only change the way you think, but faith will also change the way that you act. And you see that in these guys. Because these men really did believe that Jesus could do this. They had brought this man, he was paralyzed, and these four men had carried him on his bed, caught, whatever it would have been, and they're bringing him, they had heard where Jesus was, the news had gotten out, he's back in Capernaum, the big huge group has, has gathered, and hey, I want to get, get my friend in there. They believed that Jesus could do what he did. But now that belief became an action. And they were willing to come all the way up, come up to the roof, and break open the door. And so these men were driven to do something radical, to get these men in front of Jesus. Now that points us to something that I believe is very important for us and for you and I to consider here this morning. Faith. If it's really deep-rooted belief, if it's really a, a deep-rooted settledness of a faith, that will not wilt in the face of opposition. It's not going to wilt if it's true, deep-seated faith in Christ and in who He is, a belief in God. The obstacles are going to be of no, uh, uh, of no alarm to you. Faith does not give up in the face of difficulties. Faith does not run away when things are hard. Faith does not give way to doubt in the face of unexpected things. I am not here this morning, and I, I assure you, give me another five minutes, and you'll know that I'm not trying to rip on you here this morning. But faith, true deep-seated faith, is not going to be something where we say, hey, I'm losing my faith. We've heard that statement come out a lot. People, people say that. Maybe you've said that. Ah, oh, you know, I'm just, oh, just you know, the circumstances. Listen, you and I, we need to come back to the gospel once again this morning. I would ask you this morning, what happens when you face obstacles? What happens to your faith when you face hard things? When your life of faith is not an easy one? What happens? Ask yourself that question. What, what happens when you're not sure what God is doing? What goes on in the four walls of your home and in the, in the confines of your mind and your heart when you don't really know what is going to happen? When you're suffering in some way, what happens to your faith? 
Do you revisit all of your old habits? Do you begin to stop reading the Word? Well, God's not talking to me anyway, so I'm not going to read. Do we stop praying? Well, you know, I, God's not hearing me, clearly. I mean, everything I'm praying, He's not doing. Do we begin to question the love of God? It's easy to do. But faith, when, you, when, you, when it's real, when, when, you, when you understand that it is, it, 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 it's seated in something, it's, it's rooted in, in, in who He is, oh, that God would give us this kind of faith that we would not only believe the truths of the gospel, but those truths would be a formative to the way that we live our lives so that you and I could say, you know what, the re- <coughs> I'm doing what I'm doing maybe at my university is because I believe God. I'm doing what I'm doing as a husband toward my wife because I believe in God. I'm doing what I'm doing as a wife and to a husband because I believe in God. I'm doing what I'm doing as a parent to my children because I believe in God. I'm doing what I'm doing with my finances because I believe in God. Or I'm doing what I'm doing with my spare time because I believe in God. It's an informative, shaping reality that is lived out in our daily lives. I begin living the way that I live because I really do believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of them that seek Him, of them that live after Him. If I live that way, it's truly formative in everything in my life. I don't know about you, but I need grace this morning. Because I'll be honest, I fall so short with this. Man, there's just too much doubt in Ryan's life. There's too much questioning of God's goodness and care in Ryan's life. There's so much of that. And so you know what I need? I need the grace of God. As I was studying this text and I began to tell Jesus, he, he said that he saw their faith. And that's what made me begin to think about faith and begin to study faith and to begin to understand what the reality of what faith is, that it is a deep-seated truth, that, that we believe in that and that it leads to action. I began to, I began to write out a prayer this week because, man, did I, did I need the grace of God for me. Can I read this prayer to you here this morning that, that, that I wrote out? Actually, let's do something I don't think we've ever done before. We're going to pray in the middle of a message, okay? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Don't worry, no one's going to touch you or do anything funny to you, okay? Why don't you pray something like this in your heart? Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. Meet me in your grace so all that I do and all that I say and all that I think, and all that I feel, in every situation, every circumstance, every relationship of my life would be rooted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it would not be just a Sunday morning thing or a home fellowship or a moment of ministry.
that my faith would be the driving enthusiasm and passion of my life. May it not just be information. May it be transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't look this way. So I was studying this week and I saw this text and I began to think, wow, this faith that's supposed to literally be informative for all of my life. I began to, I began to write a prayer. Many of you in our church, you write your prayers down and, your, and your, your actions have challenged me greatly and I've begun to do that. And this week, I, that, was the, that was the prayer that I, that I wrote down. It was, God, I need your grace so I can live this way. But in my opinion, that's not what's so radical about this account. I mean, yes, some guys came and they started ripping a guy's, you know, roof up. I mean, if I was the owner, that's pretty radical. You know, are you going to pay for this? But that's not what's so radical about this. That at this moment that we are about, we're about to see, I, I, I want you to get ready for this. Jesus, he observes their faith. And when he does, his next, uh, the next thing that he does demands our attention. Let's look at verse number five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now I want you to imagine the crowd. They're sitting there, they're watching Jesus teach, and these men, they come up to the roof, they, they rip open the roof, and they let this man who's been paralyzed, no doubt, since birth, down before them. And you know what these people are probably thinking. I mean, clearly what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to, he's going to heal this man. I mean, that's probably what Jesus is thinking, right? This guy's paralyzed. These men have brought him however distance they brought him. They ripped open a roof. I mean, hello. And now this guy, he needs to be healed from his paralysis. But that's not what Christ was thinking. That's not what he does. Jesus gets up and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's not what we came here for. As Jesus looks at this man, his eyes do not only see the horror of his paralysis. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator. And so remember what we've learned over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking in on the life of Jesus. Jesus, he understands and he hates the effects of the, of the fall. You remember last week, we found Jesus in, a, in Peter's mother-in-law's house. She simply had a fever. And Jesus was there and with such love and with such compassion, he was healing a woman with a fever, which is just the effects of, uh, of the world. And he had such care and he had such compassion. And so this, so this man, who's Jesus, who is the creator of all the world, he knows that sin has, that has broken this world. And he's looking at this paralytic man. And the creator hates all of that stuff. He knows that it wouldn't exist apart from sin. But as he looks at this man, there's something that he hates more. There's a deeper issue in this man. There is a, there's a deeper brokenness. There's a deeper effect. And it is the effect of sin. And that is where the eyes of our heart of Christ goes. This man has been ravaged by something far more than a disease. He's been ravaged by sin. And the compassion of Christ goes deeper than just this physical condition. And that's where you and I can find ourselves in this text. You might not be paralyzed. Praise God for that. Praise God that we were able to walk in here this morning, right? Praise God that you can see me. I know this is a scary look, but hey, you can see me. You can hear me, 
right? You, you were able to taste food. Praise God for all of that. But listen, you and I, we can find ourselves in this text because all of us are sinners. Every single one of us, including the one that's talking to you. I mean, radical one here. I'm being transformed, praise God, by his grace uh, every day of my life. But I don't mind admitting that to you here. And so Jesus is looking at a man, hear me, who's guilty before God. Jesus is looking at a man who's living in the horror of separation from God. And the reason why the separation from God is so horrific is because every man and woman was supposed to live with him forever and for him. But Jesus looks at this man and he sees a man that is marching uh, even in his paralysis to damnation, separated eternally apart from God. And so like his paralysis, this man is utterly unable to save himself. And the heart of Christ, he, he runs out towards this. It's so easy to begin to believe that my greatest problem in life, Ryan's greatest problem in life, exists somewhere outside of me and not inside of me. So easy to say, well, it's that person's problem and this problem. It's, it's our economy and it's our hatred in our society and it's all of that. And often it's so easy to do that. And when we do, listen to me, that is a lie from the enemy. And it will lead you away from the gospel of grace. Here's why. Because grace is only ever exciting to sinners. Because listen to me. If you're seated in here and you're perfect, I'd love to meet you, by the way. I'd love to spend a few days with you and just see what perfection looks like. Because, man, I sure struggle. Just ask Sarah. Okay? She'll tell you all you need to know. But grace is exciting to sinners. Exciting to people that remain in a kind of a, a humble, uh, broken state. And so the enemy will begin to say, hey, all of your issues, it's not me. It's outside of me. And so you absolutely live in a fallen world where things are broken. You live in a world where things do not operate the way that they were meant to operate. There's injustice in our world. Oh, unbelievable injustice. There is disease in our world. There's suffering. But listen to me. The gospel declares this fundamental humbling truth. Here's what it is. No matter what I face in the brokenness of the world, my greatest problem exists inside of me and not outside of me. And the Bible names it sin. And so the Bible, the Bible's got a whole lot of descriptive words for uh, what we would call sin. The first word that we'll look at this morning is the word iniquity. Iniquity, which pictures moral uncleanness. If you're, if you're opening up your Bible and you're reading through different texts, sometimes you'll, you'll come across the word iniquity. So it's not just that you and I do wrong things. I think all of us would admit that. Yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of things. You know, I've lied here and I do this. I cheated here. You know, the speed limit. Man, the speed limit. That was brought up in our men's group this morning. The speed limit. Mercy. That's like a daily sin on my part. <laughs> Who, whoever thought 25 miles an hour was like realistic, right? My car idles faster than 25. Or maybe it's just my foot's heavier. I don't know. Whatever the case is. But it's not that you and I just do, hear me, it's not just you and I do bad things. No, 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 we've got a, a moral uncleanness about us. Listen, because I'm morally unclean, I do immoral things. You following that? 
That's what the word iniquity means. And that's throughout the Bible, iniquity. Next word is the word transgression. Oh, which is that drive that is inside of me to willingly step over God's boundaries. Oh, we're not talking about areas where we don't know the boundaries. We're talking about like clear cut, just blatant lines out there. And we just say, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. And we just step right over that bad boy. That's transgression. You ever have those in your life? Don't raise your hand. I'll do it for you. Iniquity. Man, that, that just unclean, that, that morally uncleanness in us, which breeds unclean deeds. This transgression where, you know, we, we know, you know, it probably would not be a good thing for me this morning to walk up to Rick right here in the second row and just pop him one. Okay, hopefully all of you would then would attack me, right, and protect him. But there's something wrong with that for me just to do that, right? Rick, that wasn't very good. Yeah. That's wrong, right? Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. So, and, and obviously that's a, that's a funny illustration, but in your life, you've got things too. And let the Holy Spirit poke you. And that's why I use such a vague one. Hopefully none of you want to just go punch someone this morning. But whatever it is in your life, the sexual nature, the lustful nature, the greed, the, the, the things that, that, that we know. No, no, no. Transgression, I'm going to do it anyways. And then the third one is the word sin in and of itself, which is my inability to rise to God's standard. In the analogy I gave here, it is pulling back the bow and the arrow falls short of the target every single time. So for the sake of our, our auditorium here, let's say that the standard would be the rock right here. How cool is that? That is a real rock. If you've never been here before, that is a real rock. You can climb on it later. Just don't hurt yourself, okay? And let's say I've got a bow here, and the standard would be I've got to get it to the rock. God's got a perfect standard to us. By the way, be ye holy as my Father which is in heaven is holy. That's our standard, guys. Perfection. And so when we sin, what it means is like, all right, I'm trying to reach that, I'm trying to reach that rock, and I'm always going to come up short, always going to come up short. So you and I, in the way that we live, we're always going to come up short. The word sin almost kind of even indicates your righteousnesses, the things that you're trying to do right. God gives a standard, you're trying to meet that standard, and because of sin, you'll never meet that standard because the standard is perfection. So we've got iniquity, we've got transgression, and sin. And so let me ask you a question. Do you value rate need the way the Savior does? So if you're going to properly incarnate, if you're going to properly show forth the Lord in our culture, of course we're going to be involved in medical endeavors. Of course we're going to be involved in educational endeavors, in justice endeavors, of economic assistance endeavors. But you and I, we've got to keep something at our very core this morning. The deepest need of a human being is not for medicine. The deepest need for a human being is not for education. It's not for justice. It's not for financial assistance. However, we should be engaged in those things. The deepest need of every person who has ever breathed is grace. Forgiving and empowering grace. And you and I, we must live that reality in our everyday lives. Oh, it's so vital that we live this. 
Listen, if you, if you believe that, if you believe that even after accepting Christ as your Savior, our deepest need is still grace, is still forgiveness, is still this empowering work upon Christ's behalf in our life, then listen, if that's what we really believe, then you and I, we're not going to be just a casual consumer of church. You will, not want, to, you will want to get to any place you can hear the gospel again and again and again. You will be a student of God's word. You will, be, you will love the fellowship of God's people. You will love worship. You will love teaching and preaching and, and getting into the word. You will pursue the means of grace everywhere you can. And you will want to be a part of a ministry that always remembers in all of its good works, our core values is everything comes back to the gospel. Everything comes back to Christ. Let's keep it central. And you and I, when we realize that our greatest need is grace, pre-salvation, absolutely, because we are walking in step on way to damnation that's eternally separated from God. But then Christ comes in, takes that for us, dies on the cross, takes our sin, takes our transgressions, takes our iniquities, takes our sin, and removes it. But you and I, we still are in need of radical grace in our lives. Now what Jesus said in those powerful words, son, your sins are forgiven immediately causes controversy. I mean, big time. The reason why is because there's scribes in the room. And the scribes that are in the room, they would have been experts in the law. They would have been what you could say today are a part of the theologians of our day. That's what the scribes who would have been in the text were there. And so as scribes, as the theologians of the day, they would have known that any sin was actually a sin against God. No matter how um, horizontal our sin is, ultimately there's verticality to it. They would have understood that. David even understood that when he's confessing his sin. Yeah, he sinned with Bathsheba. Yeah, she, he killed her, her husband Uriah. But ultimately he understood. He said, I, my sin is before you and you alone. He understands there's verticality to every one of our horizontal sins. And so these scribes, they would have had an understanding of that. And so they would have known that every sin was against God. And secondly, they also would have known that only God could forgive those sins. And so they begin to ponder in their hearts. They begin to, they begin to kind of think in their hearts. There's no way one can know the things that these men knew and be neutral at what Jesus just said. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You have to come down on one side or the other, and it's a beautiful, quiet demonstration of who Jesus is and his Messiahship because he can read these guys' hearts. He can read these minds. Now, I do not recommend that you try that when you go home today, okay? Don't try to read your spouse's hearts. Don't try to read your spouse, hey, gentlemen, don't try to read your wife's mind. Guys, amen? Don't try to do it. Why? Because we're not Jesus. Only Jesus can do it. And so he begins to read their minds, and I wish there was more time, but but, but there's not, so I'm going to kind of hasten through this. Scripture says a lot about the heart. It says a lot about the heart and the mind uh, connecting one with another. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
So the heart, the mind, those two things are connected. The heart is referenced in the Bible some nine, around 950 times. And if you were to take all those 950 times, I did not do that this week, but if you were to take all of them, what would happen is, is you would find that there was a, uh, the, 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 there's a theme to it. You put them all together, the word heart really can be defined this way. It's the casual core of your personhood. Stick with me, I promise you. It's the casual core of your personhood. The heart is the seat of your thoughts. It's the seat of your desires, your emotions, and your motivations. So here's what that means. It means that your heart is always active. It's always active. Whatever situation, whatever relationship you're in, the heart, which is the thoughts and desires, it's interacting with that heart. So that means that you and I, we do not simply just live by the facts. You and I do not just simply live by the circumstances that are going on in our world. No, what you and I do, our hearts are interpreting the facts and then we're living on it. That's why it's, it just mind boggles me how our world can be so divided on things. Unlike when a baby is a baby. I preached on that several weeks ago. And some would be like, no, no based on they're interpreting the facts and then they live a certain way. I interpret the facts one way and I live a different way. All I'm trying to tell you really quick right here is, is that our hearts are always active. They're always, they're always moving. So these men who are bringing these, they're bringing a particular lens to which this situation is going on. This man has been brought down the roof. Jesus says, thy sons be forgiven, or that thy sins be forgiven. These men have a lens. They have a paradigm of only God can forgive sin. Hence, this man is God, or he is an immense blasphemer. That's what they said in the text. This is either God, or he's a blasphemer. So life flows from the heart, flows from the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23, keep thy heart, guard your heart, protect your heart, put fences, be aware, be diligent. Why? Because out of it are the issues of life. So these men, they came to what was going on and they had a paradigm. Let me ask you a question. What's your paradigm? We got to make sure that it is a biblical one. We got to make sure that we we know answers to certain things. And so what Jesus does is he confronts the hearts of these men, the minds of, of, of what they're thinking. And they're thinking, what in the world is this man saying? No one but God can forgive sin. And so Christ asks this controversial question, hence the title of our message, verse 8. Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, Obviously, you're questioning my ability to do this. And so, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to give you some empirical evidence of just who I am. Hey, buddy, rise up and walk. And as the, the crowd can see him, it's like, wow. And what do they say? We've never seen anything like this before. How awesome is our God? Man. Jesus is like, all right. You don't believe that I have the power to forgive sins? I'm going to tell this guy to 
rise up and walk. Who has the ability to reach into the mess of all that sin has? Let me close this morning by saying this. To reach into the mess that we have been left with in this fallen world. To reach into the deepest recesses of the destructiveness and cleanse you at the core of your personhood. The Bible says he'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new heart. The Bible says he'll renew your mind. That Christ, he can, he can get down to who you are. So many times I've heard people say, this is just who I am. I sin because this is who I am. I sin because this is the way that I was raised. I sin because this is the way mommy and daddy... No, no, no. Jesus reaches down to the very core of who you are. And He brings change. He brings enlightenment. He brings a shaping faith that lives itself out moment by moment in your life. In introducing this forgiveness... What Jesus is ultimately announcing is, is the coming cross. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's saying, hey, I'm going to be the agent of forgiveness. I'm going to provide that forgiveness. I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to give you a new heart through salvation. May you and I be humble enough this morning. May we be humble. May we say, yes, there are things that I suffer from in this broken world. Yes, there are obstacles and difficulties and pains and sufferings that result from this life. But may we be humble enough to say this morning, I confess that my deepest and fullest dilemma is inside of me. And it's not outside of me. And here's the good news for you this morning. That's why you and I have Jesus. Because, oh, Jesus can take care of the outside. But you know what he ultimately does? Is Jesus transforms the inside. He reaches to this man and he says, thy sins be forgiven. Oh, you don't believe I have that power? All right, I'll take care of the outside too. And raises the man. Listen to me, that is the gospel. That is the grace that you and I need. When you and I move away from that, when we move away from that brokenness, when we move away from that humbleness before God, two things happen. You quit being a pursuer of grace. You become pharisaical. You become thinking that everything is okay and that, you know, I've got all this down. I've got everything checked. I'm good, pastor. I don't need you. I don't need anybody else in my life. I'm good. You quit being a pursuer of grace. And secondly, you quit being enthusiastic about grace for others. Because if you no longer need it, well, I don't want it then shown on that radical sinner. If you only knew what they did, if you only knew what they said, how would you want me to forgive them? What's happened is, is we've stepped away from the gospel. We've stepped away from the reality that Ryan Johnson here, man, he still needs grace every moment of every day. And, oh, I hope you get it too. But we'll move away from that if we don't remain humble before the Lord. When we stop seeing grace as our greatest need, we go on a pursuit of temporal things to fulfill us. Things like romance, things like money, things like love, 
friendships, popularity, nice things, job security. Oh, by the way, nothing is wrong with any of those. But when you realize that your greatest need is grace, and oh, by the way, it's already been met in Jesus, then you and I, we can stop looking for anything other than Jesus to validate us. Anything other than Jesus to, uh, to fulfill us. Hear, hear what I'm saying, my friends. Jesus really is enough. And when you and I come to that conclusion, when we begin to see, wow, my greatest need is grace, and Jesus fully met that, when we, when we understand that Jesus really is enough, then you and I will finally understand what James tells us in James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When you and I begin to finally see Christ and that he is enough, you and I will then be able to look around at our life. Here I'm about to say, Ryan, hear yourself. You're able to look around your life and you're able to say, man, I'm blessed. Rather than, well, I don't have this and I don't have this and I don't have this and I don't have this. And here's what happens. We're looking for stuff to do only what Jesus can do. And that's meet the need of the heart. And so may God use this Story that many of us have probably heard many times growing up in church or in Sunday school. And may we have the right priorities and may we, our sense of need, be rooted deeply in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please.